I'm Robert Polly, and this is the 7th Avenue Project. It's a good bet that somewhere in America, right now, at this very moment, there's a big new national scandal brewing. Some public figure has been caught with pants down, or skirt up, or dipping a hand in the till, or committing some other breach of decorum, ethics, or the law. And in short order, like clockwork, we'll have the unfolding revelations, all the news stories, the obligatory jokes from late-night comics, and from the accused, the usual denials, followed perhaps by abject confessions, and maybe a trip to rehab or jail or some other form of public penance. And then maybe down the line, a reemergence in the public eye and a comeback. We all know the storyline, backwards and forwards, by heart, and yet we seemingly never tire of it. That's the thing about favorite stories, I guess. The familiarity is part of the appeal. And with scandals, at least, the appeal is so irresistible that we seldom get beyond the juicy narrative and the official moral of the story to ask what larger truths such events might have to tell us about ourselves and our society. Which is why the subject was just begging for a serious treatment by a sharp-eyed and tough-minded observer like the writer Laura Kipnis. I last spoke to Laura on this show about her book Against Love. It's a look at the hazards and romantic myths surrounding monogamy and marriage. And I'm delighted to have her back to scrutinize another great social institution. Her new book is called How to Become a Scandal, Adventures in Bad Behavior. It focuses on four scandals, all of which made a big splash in their day, and all of which, in Laura Kipnis's view, had beneath their surface details of a deeper story, revealing something of the shaky nature of the human psyche and the self divided against itself. Here's Laura Kipnis to explain. You know, I ended up thinking that there's a way that these scandalizers are acting at such an unconscious level, and they're sort of scattering unconsciousness around in the public sphere. You know, I found myself in, in constructing these cases and following the narrative, sort of piecing together the clues that they were dropping in, into uh, like a meta-narrative. So you have the story that gets played out on the surface, and, and then there's this sort of trail of clues that lead you in these other directions. And I found myself like this bloodhound or this detective or armchair psychoanalyst track, tracking the, you know, the spore of these um, traces. Well, um, why don't we get into um, some okay. real case histories? Um, and I'm going to take them in the order that, that you give them to us. Let's start with um, the woman you call the lovelorn astronaut. Yes. Captain Lisa... Noack. Noack. A lot of people will remember her. Um, this event took place in uh, 2007. She was a shuttle astronaut, but um, her love life got the better of her. <laughs> yeah, that's a way of putting it. Yeah, she was a part of NASA. She'd been to space, which is obviously about as high as you can get. And, and then, you know, the, the way the story was framed when it went public was that she had driven cross-country from Houston to Orlando in, in diapers was the element that caught everyone's attention in order to slack the new girlfriend of her old boyfriend, who was also an astronaut. The boyfriend was there, both in NASA. Let's remind people a little bit more of the details. This is, uh, again, Captain Lisa Nowak, an astronaut, who uh, had been having an affair with Captain William, how do you pronounce his last name? I'm not sure. Ophelin? <laughs> Ophelin. looks like Ophelin. Yeah. Uh, who, in turn, jettisoned her, I believe that's the NASA term, uh, uh, for another captain, an Air Force captain, named Colleen Shipman. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Which, uh, if I had been writing headlines, I would have said "Captain's Outrageous." That would have been my headline. Uh, very good. Uh, <laughs> so Lisa, the the spurned lover, um, you know, was bent completely out of shape, and for one reason or another, she drove all night to find the new lover, and um, according to the charges against her, uh, to to harm this person, to maybe kidnap or even kill this person, she had all kinds of various paraphernalia with her in the car that suggested perhaps bondage uh, and other things. What she did do is confront her at an airport and, and actually pepper spray her as yeah. the, as the, as, uh, the, uh, the victim tried to get away in her car. Yeah. So there was an assault involved, but we will never know perhaps what she was really thinking. Yeah, she had all these weird weapons with her, a BB gun, this pepper sprays, a mallet, rubber tubing. Um, but she claimed that all she wanted was to talk to Colleen. And one thing to say is that all the transcripts of the police interviews are available online. And this is good to know for anybody who may be about to get themselves into a scandal. You know, there's just no privacy anymore. I'm sure none of these people in the course of these police interviews suspected that all of this information, which includes a lot of detail about their private lives, would be available online. The only thing that was excluded from being disclosed was uh, her psychiatric records. So when you read the transcript of Lisa Noack's interview, um, I mean, she says she wanted just to talk to Colleen. She wanted to find out if Colleen knew about her affair with Bill. She wanted, I think, um, if you read closely these transcripts, I think she wanted to let Colleen know that there had been a period of overlap between the two of them where Colleen was like unwittingly in a, a triangle and didn't know it. Um, so, she, you know, she she had this purpose, this mission, which I think at some psychological level was meant to assuage this terrible injury, this blow to the ego of having been dumped by this man that she was deeply in love with. Judging from the the transcript of this interrogation, she was obsessed with the idea that if she could just talk to Colleen, the woman who had replaced her, and just find out whether Colleen knew about her. And my thought was, this is one of the, I don't know how many stages there are, but uh, of uh, grief uh, when you've been dumped um, that uh, include anger and, uh, you know, maybe ultimately acceptance. But in between is this this very late stage, which is, um, I may not get him or her back, but I just want to know that I mattered at one point because it's so annihilating to be dumped, you know? Yeah. And, and, it, and it seemed like all she wanted to do was find out that she existed to the extent that the other woman even knew about her. Well, there's this, this bargaining or rationalization or, or you could even say fantasy level, um, if only I do this, I can rectify the situation. Mm-hmm. And what the police uh, guy who interrogated her managed to elicit from her is is that uh, she... I think seemed to think that if it was all in the open, that they could all sort of, that both of the women could be involved mm. with Bill, that he didn't have to make a choice. She actually says that. And the, the police guys at Beckton, I think also the lieutenant, says, what are you telling me, that you would be willing to see this guy if you were still seeing you know, this other woman? And, and she says, yeah. So th- there seemed to be some purpose like that, which had no relation to reality, but, uh, yeah, she had this, this purpose to, to heal this wound. Um, but you say the, the most memorable part of the story, uh, which I think for most people really was the diapers that she supposedly wore in order to make this long overnight trip without having to take a rest stop. 
that may not have actually happened? Her lawyer held a press conference saying that it was absolutely not true, that the police had invented it, that she had these toddler-sized diapers in her car that were left over from, I think it was Hurricane Rita, when they'd all had to camp out somewhere, uh, her her family, because she had these, these twin toddlers. But, you know, it was such a humiliating element. People just seized on it. The talk show host went crazy with delight at the at this. And the, the jokes, I mean, it, it was years before they went away, and she's still known for that, even though, you know, I, I can't say independently what's true and not true. I didn't do independent investigation, but it seems likely that, it, it, that the, what the lawyer said was true. Hmm. So, so you you kind of believe the the lawyer think that he may have been telling the truth, and but that doesn't prevent you from talking a lot about the diapers as symbolic and symbolic of a kind of uh, incontinence, metaphorically, <laughs> Psych- a psychic incontinence. Well, it's what I say in the preface. We're all leaky vessels, and you know, I, when I started talking about this um, anecdote that uh, somebody I was having dinner with. Uh, said to me about uh, he kind of let drop in in the conversation uh, that he had uh, in his past visited a prostitute. He says any man, this is during the Spitzer scandal, and he said any man who says he's never been to a prostitute is, is lying. And I, you know, puzzle over <laughs> why he would have said this to me at, at dinner. And I ended up thinking we're all leaky vessels to some degree, and that, you know, it wasn't like he was thinking before he said this, it just sort of came out. And I think that was a, a you know, writ small version of what happens on a larger scale with some scandalizers that, you know, there is some uh, something analogous between the ways that we are confessing things about ourselves left and right without thinking about the consequences and the way scandalizers are, you know, in a performative way. They're performing these desires publicly. They're confessing to these irreconcilable or so antisocial desires. So that every scandal has this element of, of confession to it. And I think we can't keep secrets. You know, I think we're not built to keep secrets. Secrets make us, you know, deeply uncomfortable and we want to... Uh... We want to confide, you know, unbosoming is something that's necessary, and uh, doing so, though, is is what gets some of these people in scandals. I think that we're all a collection of warring impulses, you know, and some people more warring than others, and there's, uh, you know, there's there's a limit to how much the warfare can be contained, and, you know, I, Freud says, you know, there's no complete repression. I mean, we all have to repress a whole slew of desires, you know, it's part, it's part of the socialization process, it's part of living in society. You know, you can't do everything you want to do. You can't just run around humping people left and right on the street and, you know, say everything you'd like to say. So, you know, there's always this level of necessary repression, and but I don't think it's entirely successful. Um. You mentioned Elliot Spitzer a moment ago. He was governor of New York when his scandal broke. His scandal, of course, was his very expensive relationship with uh, a prostitute, mostly one prostitute, if I remember correctly. After having been this this crusading attorney general for the state of New York, who actually went after prostitution and went after uh, their customers, signed a, a bill into law that actually raised the penalties for for uh, for John 
Yeah, for Johns, for punters, as they say in England, people <laughs> people who patronize prostitutes. And and he's um, not at all rare in, in the sense of a guy whose ultimate scandalous behavior is uh, 180 degrees from his public stance on something. You know, we have all these um, fundamentalist and homophobic types uh, and family values types who are caught in having gay relationships, for instance, or adulterous relationships, you know, which always is kind of amazing. They didn't have to go out of their way to declare homosexuality evil if, in fact, they were a closeted gay person Mm -hmm. or had, you know, desires in that direction. They didn't really have to paint a target on themselves in a way, you know, but they do. Well, you know, conflicting impulses. I mean, the the moralist, uh, the finger-wagging moralist uh, on the outside and the libertine on the inside. It's a, You know, it's a familiar social type. Do we, whenever we see signs of um, extraordinary conviction, extraordinary commitment, you know, to an ideology, should we think he protests too much? Well, I... I you know, it's hard to universalize about it, but I, you know, it, it raises suspicions. So the safest people are those who are kind of mealy-mouthed about their <laughs> beliefs? <laughs> or, yes, they can't take a position. Exactly. <laughs> it is extraordinary. I mean, you you see these scandals, um, which um, the ones that you pick always involve people doing things that couldn't be better designed to get them into trouble, where they seem to go out of their way to disgrace themselves, get caught, um, you know, and uh, end in infamy, you know? I mean, these aren't cases where they're minding their own business and very quiet private people. These are, these are cases where people put a megaphone up and almost yeah. announce that they're, they're doing something naughty. And, and I'd love to move on to the, to the next story, which is one that um, I didn't know about, um, maybe because I don't live in New York, maybe because I'm really not a, a scandal follower, but this is the case of the... Um, the judge, Saul Wachtler? Yeah, Saul. Yeah. Saul Wachtler, uh, former Chief Justice of New York State of Appeals, the highest judicial position in the state. Mm-hmm. Want to remind us what he did? It, this was the oldest scandal that I wrote about. I think it was 92. And, you know, yeah, as you say, he, he was this incredibly prominent legal figure. He'd been talked about as possibly the first Jewish president. And um, he had been having an affair with this woman. Uh, she was rich, a socialite, she was his wife's step-cousin, so there was a family connection, and he dumped her, he broke off the relationship, which is a curious thing, because then after that, when after she got a new boyfriend, he, uh, he was married, uh, I should say, with, you know, kids, um, he started stalking her and threatening her, but while impersonating a that diabetic private detective from Texas. Uh, and he, so he created this alter ego. And then there was a second alter ego, a Catholic woman from New Jersey. So he proceeded to issue these threats, um, threatening phone calls, actually sent condoms and a greeting card to the woman's 14-year-old uh, daughter, and this woman was not like no nobody. She was this very prominent Republican fundraiser who had been nominated for an ambassadorship by the first President Bush, who had the private phone number of the head of the FBI at the time. 
So, you know, of all the people you're going to threaten, this is not the person to do it. Then the, you know, FBI, she went to the went to Washington to talk to the head of the FBI. The FBI put 80 agents on the case and, and were tracking him. And all of the worst things that he did were actually while the FBI was still tracking him. So, you know, it's this incredibly horrible public downfall. So he, you know, both got to the position he had through his achievements in the law. He ignored everything he knew about the law, brought himself down, and then was punished by the law. And, you know, this was somebody who had had this kind of fascination with with prison life for the entirety of his career uh, and then, you know, managed to end up in one. I want to recapitulate this because the details are so fantastical, uh, I can scarcely believe them. But let's just enumerate them a little bit here. This guy who is an absolute star uh, of the yeah. judicial scene. I mean, a guy some have uh, pegged for a future governor of New York or even presidential candidate. Yeah, a brilliant legal theorist. Brilliant and also legal. progressive, a progressive Republican progressive. in the Rockefeller mold. You know, he, he had a very, like, a brilliant legal mind. Well, so on, on the surface, at least, a guy who really has his stuff together. Mm-hmm. He's actually, uh, also, you describe him as, um, you know, by nature, kind of prudish, you know, not the type to get involved in a sexual liaison, but but he does maybe because this woman pursues him and flatters him enough. This socialite, this rich socialite, good-looking younger woman. At any rate, they they get into an affair. She starts um, complaining uh, that it's time for him to break it off with yeah. his wife and take up with her. At which it was point, a four-year affair. It was not you know a one-night stand. Yeah, right, right. So um, at some point, he decides it's it's. It's no good anymore. He he uh, breaks it off with her uh, using the pretext, the invented pretext of a brain tumor, yeah. uh, and uh, and uh, and and so she accepts that, goes off and gets involved with another guy. At which point he becomes obsessed with her. Yeah. He starts creating these personae that um, like this uh, doddering Texas detective who calls her up and threatens her in his Texas drawl. Yeah. Uh, he gets so deep into the role that he practices it. He buys. Costumery, just to feel more like this Texas guy, yeah, a, yeah. a Stetson and a string tie, and so yeah. on. He he has other characters he uses. He he seems to just absolutely relish this role playing. Yeah. Uh, and uh, gradually, she knows who he is all along, and she calls the FBI, and they spring the trap after he completely hangs himself uh, by threatening, you know, in the guise of this detective to kidnap her daughter and do other things that are using his own cell phone, by the way. <laughs> Well, that and he, by by this creating the second alter ego, making this woman live in New Jersey, it involves them crossing <laughs> state lines. I think it makes it more of a, a federal crime as opposed to, like, just some local, uh, you know, harassment charge. You know, one thing to say about all these details, they're, they're, they're hilarious, but... At one level, but they're they're tragic at another level, and so leaves us the choice: do we view this as comedy or as tragedy? So, of course, you know, late night comedians in the society in general, particularly with Lisa Noack and the Diaper, turn this into high comedy. And you know, I write about the horribly funny elements of this, but they're also completely tragic, and I think we we're less. Uh, we don't want to see these as tragedies, as, so the humor lets us kind of dismiss it as comedy, if you see what I mean. Mm. Well, you know, I, I, I've been chuckling uh, in describing these things, whereas, you know, in reading about them, I was really horrified. Yeah. Um, but your tone in this book is one of um, scarcely contained delight. 
<laughs> I, but wait, I, I want to say that I think it's also been said that I have been very empathic and, and care, you know, that I, that the book is not like malicious towards these people, but that it has this quality of empathy, which I was, you know, ho- hoping would come across. <laughs> so I think it's a combination of delight, but also empathy and also a sort of terror and horror that this kind of thing could happen to me or, or any of us. Because, you know, you have these previously entirely rational people who become, I can't remember, what was your word? I'll just say unhinged. Unhinged, yeah. I mean, you know, they didn't choose to uh, enact these these things that they enacted. So it, it does raise this question of how much will or control do any of us have. I mean, you have it up until the point when you don't. Yeah. So let me amend what I said about you and and, uh, and, and the glee in your prose. Thank you. Uh, your glee is tinged with fear, um, you know, fear about us as, uh, as a species. And you write, uh, if otherwise shrewd and purposeful citizens can be simultaneously afflicted with an inner imperative to bring their lives crashing down around themselves, if, that, if that's true, then, then what does that say about us? Yeah, so there, there is fear and, you know, mystery. Um, and it's also, I recognize that it, it, in much smaller ways, all of us, I think, have, have done these kinds of things. Like, you know, you say to yourself, how could I have said that? How could I have done that? And, you know, in the Lisa Noah case, I mean, I think most people have gone through some horrible breakup, have done things they later thought, oh, you know, how could I have humiliated myself that way? The, you know, dialing while drunk or, you know, drive-bys of the, ex, the ex's apartment. You know, that that kind of thing. So, you know, I think everybody does recognize that there are moments when you just are, are you know, not yourself. I mean, all these cliches come to mind. You know, I myself, uh, you know, maybe this is why I didn't know about Saul Wachler, and I really didn't know that much about Lisa Nowak. I am not a scandal follower in general, and I'm wondering, you know, who is the, the perfect consumer for scandal? I mean, if we look at the... Um, the tabloids, the scandal sheets, they're aimed, I think they're aimed mostly at women, aren't they? Uh, the ones at the checkout stand? I suppose that's true, but, you know, particularly because celebrity gossip has become so much a part of the culture these days. I mean, even, you know, supposedly serious types, like when, say, Britney Spears was having all of her, her ups and downs, you know, people seem to be pretty versed on, on this stuff. Um, but... You know, and also, say, like, late-night TV, you know, if you watch Letterman or Leno, that's partly what these people are, what they're talking about is people who are, you know, in the, in the news at the moment for, for doing something scandalous or self-destructive. Before we leave him behind uh, and move on to the next scandal, what do you finally make of the, the train wreck that uh, is or was Saul Wachtler? You know, one thing I should say is that his defense, uh, at the trial and since was undiagnosed manic depression and and also that there were some com- bad combination of prescription drugs he was taking. So he wants to say that it was a biochemical thing, that it wasn't him. You know, it's like this sort of medical analogy that the, the, the side of him that enacted this stuff was, was kind of like a tumor. You know, it wasn't him or part, part of him. It was this biochemical, uh, you know, accident. And the prosecution psychiatrist said all sorts of different things, like it was 
a character disorder was, you know, narcissistic character disorder, that kind of thing. So, you know, in all of these cases, there are these disputes about the motives or disputes often about the the details, like with, with Lisa Nook, the, the diapers. And, and Lisa Nook, part of her defense also was manic depression. So, you know, you as an observer or me as an observer slash writer, you know, weigh all of, of these things. And, you know, biochemistry is the like an explanation of the moment that, that is a way people don't have to then think about psychology. So say like with Wachler, if he can say it's biochemical, then he's not uh, thinking that the stuff he did, like these personae that he created, have anything really to do with him, if you see what I mean. Yeah, well, what do you think? Well, um, I think it's more convenient to take the more superficial explanation. I think biochemistry um, allows you not to have to think in, in a real meaningful way about what all of this stuff means. And I, and I also think there are, you know, these are, they're, it has to do with fashions of talking about the self. You know, Freudian psychology is less in fashion, biochemical explanations are more in fashion. But these are shifting in kind of political ways of describing the self, like the, the DSM, like the, you know, di- the, the big manual that lists the psychiatric uh, disorders. You know, it's always very political what goes in the DSM and what doesn't. Saul Wachler, I, I actually um, have one more question about him, and that is um, there are a large number of people who seem to exemplify achievement, accomplishment, who then turn out to have some huge Achilles heel that brings them down. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if the price of that kind of success, the kind of compartmentalization, the kind of self-discipline, maybe the kind of um, oh machinations and strategies that it takes to climb to the top, claw your way to the top, um, also contain you know some of the deep character flaws or blind spots that, that are the stuff of scandal. Yeah, I, I think that's very true and very well put. I mean, there are two sides. There's that side, the individual side. And then, of course, people with more social standing are, are more likely to have the media camped in their lawn when they create some wreckage out of their life. Yeah, that's you true, know, too. Your next-door neighbor, you know, who has an affair, the, the dentist next door who has an affair, it's, it's unless he, his wife runs over him with a Mercedes, which is one of the cases that I talk about in passing, you know, he's less likely to make the national news than somebody with more stature, you know, a governor who is exposed. This is true, but at the very, very highest echelons in any field, you you may find people not only who attract more attention and thus obviously are, are, are better um, fodder for, for scandal, but whose extraordinary uh, measures to propel themselves to that yeah. status also it re- required some huge compromises on on the level of developing their whole self. I think that, yeah, I, I'll go along with that. I, I'll, I'll sign on for that. <laughs> um, let's move on to the, to the next, the, the third of the four big scandals that uh, you recount in the book. Um, Linda Tripp. Now, you are not talking about the scandal of the Clinton-Lewinsky affair. You're talking about the scandal of Linda Tripp, who was the one who really brought it out in the open. She was supposedly a friend of Monica Lewinsky who was taping her and uh, to some extent uh, coaxing, you know, confessions from from Monica Lewinsky and documenting them. 
So why did you pick her, and in what sense was she a scandal? Well, the book is divided into two parts. The first part is downfalls, and the second part is uproars. Um, <laughs> so I you know, focused, I think, a bit more in the first part on why they did it, and in the second part a bit more on what our response was. And so with the first time I was kind of fascinated by with with Linda Tripp, I mean, you know, there's so much that's fascinating about it, but with the public response to her when she appeared in public was this abhorrence toward her and, you know, really largely people probably remember based on the way that she looked. And so some people thought that this was, you know, like kind of illicit, that that's not what we should be talking about. But as I thought about it more, started taking it seriously, I started thinking about, well, what is the relation between appearance and, and character? And, you know, it's not an association we're, we're supposed to make. But in her case, I think that her, her facial expression, it wasn't her physiognomy. It was what would be called pathonomy, the expression on her face. And her features were, like, in conflict with one another. And so, for example, when she smiles, she has this tendency to bare her upper cheeks in this way that makes her look incredibly aggressive and, and threatening. So she's smiling, but there's this threat behind it. And, you know, when she smiles, it's a kind of fake smile. Her eyes don't smile. And, you know, this, you, I put this together with research I did, stuff that was made public about her own background. I mean, this is somebody who had a history of betrayal in her own family, who's been horribly betrayed by her, her father. I mean, she has this pretty unhappy life. Well, well, let's be more specific. Her father was a womanizer, and, uh, you know, when she then later found out from her friend Monica that this that the president himself was a womanizer, it seems to have triggered, you know, all kinds of ancient rage. Well, everything that was said by people who knew him about her father kind of replicated what was said about Clinton. You know, he couldn't keep his pants on, he thought with his, you know... <laughs> uh, trousers. Like, trousers, sorry. Yes, he thought with his trousers. Um, <laughs> sorry, public radio, I forgot. Um, yes, and, and um, the, the way that uh, she, she treated the, this friend of hers, I mean, I think, you know, she's somebody who had felt betrayed throughout her whole life. Mm-hmm. She's not somebody I'm sympathetic to. She did this horrible thing, but, you know, the narr- it's an incredibly interesting narrative. Yeah, uh, it's funny. I guess it's a sign of, of the fact that I'm just not a big scandal guy that I found the whole thing so tawdry, I didn't really delve into this level of detail. So reading your book sort of informed me or reminded me if I had forgotten exactly what had happened. But Linda Tripp, uh, along with the um, complicity of Lucianne Goldberg, a, a literary agent and sort of conservative activist, you know, sort of engineered the Lewinsky revelations uh, set her up uh, to tell these stories, told her that she was just her friend and wanted to console her and counsel her through this ordeal, but in fact was taping her, urged her to keep the infamous dress, of course, that uh, provided the forensic evidence against Bill Clinton, and then, you know, betrayed her. Horribly. Horribly, I guess, yeah. Yeah, although some would say in the service of truth, in, in, of, of, of getting the truth out there. I mean, to be fair, some would say that she... She definitely uh, brought to light something that Americans needed to know. <laughs> some, some would say that. Um, but what was interesting about Linda Tripp as a figure, I, I, I'm, I'm um, reminded by your book, was that when she finally came out in public, 
she presented herself as a victim herself, you know, and what seemed to be on the surface was an extreme neediness that she mm-hmm. wanted to be loved and admired for what she did. Of course, it didn't work out that way at all. Her looks were mocked. Her seeming two-facedness was mocked. She presented herself as a patriot, but, every, you know, everything she said just seemed wrong. It seemed, it seemed off. Um, she inspires some of your most wickedly funny prose. Um, after her first exposure and, and the mockery that ensued, she then uh, spent a lot of money having herself redone physically and uh, came out again, and you say, expensively made over and media coached to within an inch of taxidermy, blinking madly under the weight of centipede-like false eyelashes, she carefully stage-managed every part of her new look except for one crucial element, her mouth. Yeah, I suppose I did have um, you know, a bit of fun with that. Uh, you know, and I suppose in the book she's a person I, f- I feel less sympathy to. You know, uh, that's pretty obvious, yeah. You know, you said <laughs> that you didn't pay attention to this because it was so tawdry. And, you know, that it's an issue for me. I, I guess m- most of the books that I've written, I somehow am attracted to low subjects. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm kind of interested in redeeming them and treating them intellectually seriously. But I sometimes feel like I get classed, you know, in as a writer in this category of the of the tawdry, and so I think that I can through, you know, like like this the prose, the writing, or some you know intellectual prowess or something rescue these subjects from the tawdry. So I'm always distressed when somebody says, "Oh, I don't pay attention to that stuff; it's just tawdry." Well, you know, um, let me try to correct any false impressions I may have given our listeners. The reason I'm talking to you is that your your prose is dazzling and your thoughts are are exciting and interesting. Oh, not, thank you. See, I was fishing for compliments. <laughs> not because you're just another writer for you know the National Enquirer or something. You know, not at all. Um, but I am fascinated by why someone such as yourself has found her metier in in human folly, uh, which seems to be the case. <laughs> what an interesting question. You know, I'm not sure I'm so well positioned to say. I, you know, you end up thinking how, or concluding how little you really know about yourself as you watch these other people parade their blind spots around in public. And, you know, that's the theme I ended up focusing on in the book was this this issue of blind spots. Um, so I'm not sure I'm, you know, positioned to know where mine are or know, be able to describe so accurately where my investments come from. I think there is something... Um, about hypocrisy that that bugs me. I don't think of myself as a moralist. But I've been forced to think about like my own moral positions and be less mealy-mouthed about them, to use your phrase. And I, and I think this idea of what we pretend isn't the case or the sort of elephant in the room or the unequal ways that we approach different figures, um, I mean, there's... There is something about hypocrisy that it both interests me and you know incites me enough to um, write about you know so like against love, um, which was about adultery, and even my last book about femininity, the female thing. I mean, I think there are things that like we all know but don't admit, and I find myself drawn to those subjects. Mm, yeah, well, you reveal precious little about yourself. 
at least in the two books that I've read. Against... And I spent most of my writing career trying to deflect <laughs> personal questions in case you were about to embark on it. I wasn't. No, I was going to ask you why you reveal so little. You know, I think that it makes me, I feel it gives me more liberty as a writer. You know, like particularly if I write about personal subjects or, or personal life type subjects, not pers- personal to me, then I can sort of say what I want. Like, for example, in the Lisa Nowak chapter, I could sort of allude to, um, you know, errors I might have also committed in the, you know, in the process of breakups, but without going in, into specifics about it, which would feel to me like in, invasive and in, invading my own mm-hmm. privacy. And I'm, I think it's also a bit of contrarianness because, I mean, we're in, we live in such self-disclosing times and it's just so much the conventional move for every writer to, like, plumb their, you know, childhoods and write in this excruciating personal detail about about their lives. There's something in me that just resists the conventionality of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, resist it you do, so there's there's no confessions in this book. But nonetheless... There, there are in books like this um, the attempt to create a kind of impregnable case or argument, right? But I wonder if the book itself is is like those careers that come down in in, in shambles in these stories. It, no, no, I don't mean your book. I mean, yeah. I mean the book in general. I mean uh-huh. the polemical book, the expository book. Uh, what is a book? Why why this this wholly contained, well rounded, supposedly watertight kind of argument, uh, but a kind of shelter in the way that a career or, a, a, you know, a, a, a carefully composed life story is. And, and those things usually have cracks, right? That's a really interesting thing to bring up. And, I, you know, I was, I was intrigued. There was a, I got a really nice review in the, in the New York Times, a Sunday book review by Susan Dominus, who's a writer for the, the Times. And she said something about um, the my own blind spot, me, as as a writer, was a kind of excess in the prose, a sort of over-the-top quality of writing, which I sometimes like to do, excess flourishes. And, you know, I am somebody who spends a lot of time revising sentences and adding little Phillips and, you know, (laughs) taking pleasure in finding the right metaphor. And, And I... And I have to say, I mean, I think because what you, what you say is very intriguing to me, there is a, uh attempt at maybe a kind of impregnability in that. It's to, you know, pre- present a sort of polished surface or an amusing surface. And I, I think probably it is my... I, I gave her that point. I thought it was a bit of a, a criticism, but also a quite accurate point about my own blind spot. And I think what you're bringing up is, is the case, too. It's, it's a bit of an insulation, you know, I'm not sure I know a different way to write. And, you know, it it, it relates to the element of uh, exposure. You know, one of the things that's going on now, I think, in the in the world is there's, there's a, a real shift in the public-private divide and, you know, much less privacy in all the social media. And this interest in celebrity culture, um, you know, part of what it's about is people who propel themselves into the limelight, into celebrity, seek celebrity, seek, seek attention, without thinking that that might also boomerang back on them or have negative repercussions. You know, I keep getting asked, 
even though I don't write about celebrities, about people like Kim Kardashian, and I wasn't even sure who that was, but these people <laughs> who are famous for being famous. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. Um, Paris Hilton, people Par- like that. That one, Paris Hilton, yeah. yeah. And I think what people don't think about in those positions, but this turned out to be the case with Linda Tripp, that propelling yourself into the limelight, you're, you're never quite in control then of, of what happens to you. Um, you know, Linda Tripp is, is somebody who sought out um, through these this act, these actions that she took sought to propel herself in the midst of a national scandal, you know, instigate this national scandal, and it turned back on her in really horrifying and sadistic ways. Mm-hmm. So there's something about being public. Sorry, this is a bit of a long-winded way of saying, coming back to your question. I mean, there is something about putting yourself in, you know, whether it's your writing, your your thoughts, your, your intellectual, um, you know, conclusions and investments in public, it does have a, a kind of, I don't want to say threatening element, but you never quite know what's going to happen to you when you do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it did. It did. And uh, books of, of criticism, books of argumentation, um, uh, commentary, observation, maybe one of the safest arenas, the, the ones least likely to trip you up uh, and, and, and expose something you don't want to expose. I mean, they are a refuge, I think, in a way. I mean, that's my, my little theoretical self-indulgence there. But I do I did want to say something extenuating about you uh, vis-a-vis that New York Times piece you were talking about, which is that, yeah, your tone is knowing, and, and you're going to probably hate this word, but it's the one that comes to mind, kind of catty. Uh, but it's self-aware to the point where you kind of seems like you know full well that you're writing that way. And you're and, and not with a superior tone, which is where uh, you you know if 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 you if you really were lording it over your poor victims, uh, I think you'd be vulnerable to some criticism. But rather, I think there's something playful in it, um, and I can tell you don't take yourself completely seriously in that role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there is a fellow feeling uh, that I have toward, toward these people who have wrecked their lives. But I don't think the criticism is quite the refuge that you're you're saying because you know I know with my last book the female thing I mean I got very raked over the coals by um, some people for that book so I mean I think you can stir up controversies that people respond to in a accusatory Absolutely. or personal way if you go out on a limb yeah, yeah. there's a there's I, I don't think against love was going out on a, a, a limb because. I mean, too far, because though it said things that were outrageous, it, there was an eye-winking in it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where you, yeah. You, you let us know that you were just taking an argument and for its own sake, pushing it to the limit, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was, a, there was a fun and playful quality to that, and, and, you know, instructive as well. But yeah, criticism can put you in a very vulnerable place as well, of course. Mm-hmm. Well, we were talking about books as themselves a kind of... Um, a kind of stage uh, for enacting some of these dramas. And, and so I want to go to your very last uh, uh, scandal person <laughs> in your book, and that's James Fry. Uh, it's spelled like Frey, but it's pronounced Fry. Mm-hmm. The memoirist, so-called, author of A Million Little Pieces, uh, which uh, was his undoing, at least for a time, although uh, he made a lot of money and he kept the money, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. But he wrote this um, supposed memoir that contained huge fabrications, um, made himself out to be a, a rather grand character, first as a, as, a, as a criminal who was wanted in three states and 
you know, an unbelievably um, almost thermonuclear wreck uh, of a drug addict, right? Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, a tough guy who goes to jail for a time and then goes to rehabilitation and toughs it out on his own terms, you know, even getting a root canal without Novocaine <laughs> and, right. other, and other tall tales. I mean, these were all, a lot of these were exposed by the, um, what would you call the smoking gun website? What category does it belong to? Well, it's a, it's a scandal-mongering uh, website. I mean, they're muckraking. Muckraking, or, or, I like that well, better. Or truth-exposing, I guess. With, exactly. Well, what they, they did was, was go and fact-check this, this memoir, yeah. which is not usually done to memoirs. Right. And, and exposed a, a bunch of lies that he told. I mean, he said that it was something like, you know, only 10% made up. I can't remember the exact figure. <laughs> How do you calculate that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, among the things he made up, he spent an afternoon in, in a police station waiting to be picked up by a friend, I guess, after being arrested for, was it uh, driving that, while intoxicated? Oh, yeah, I think that was it, yeah. Which turned into, I mean, in his book... Uh, uh, a major showdown with police, a brawl, uh, you know, in a term in, in, a, in a tough jail where all kinds yeah. of things happen, uh, like a three-month term in jail. And he later said, well, I guess various terms are thrown around, embellished, or he was true to the, the, the spirit of his actual experience. But I don't, I personally am very skeptical. I don't see how an afternoon at a police station turns into uh, a, doing hard time in jail. You know, I, I have to say that I, I never really made my way through the entire books. I, I was not a fan of these books, but I also thought that he got incredibly scapegoated and treated like he was some kind of criminal. And what he was was a, a writer, an imaginative writer. And, you know, I, I'm maybe in the minority here because other people took this much more seriously. I think, you know, memoir is a genre. It's a literary genre. It's not a a contract with readers. It's not a legal binding contract. It's a, you know, this book, these books became so successful because they told good stories. They, they spun these into narratives. And so it was a story based on a life. Um, you know, there's a real confusion between memoirs and journalism. And journalism is about facts. Um, you know, I think memoir is, is a literary and imaginative form. But, you know, I'm in the minority on it. Well, I'm glad I finally have someone who, who uh, to argue with about this. Okay. Um, who takes your position, because I saw your position. Actually, James Fry and, and his supporters took your position. Memoirs are, are never really true in the literal sense. Why are we asking them to be? Yeah. But, but surely when you say, um, I was born in Ohio, you try to be truthful about that. And if you were born in Slovenia, you know... Uh, and not Ohio, you should say so. Uh, if you say, I climbed uh, Mount Everest, and it turns out you climbed a hill near your home in Ohio instead, those are two extremely different things. And I, I don't think memoir excuses that kind of fabrication. Um, memoir purports to be uh, autobiography, you know, the true story of one's life. And, of course, one, there are things you can't quite remember, and you may get little details wrong. And, of course, bits of remembered dialogue are almost always wrong. But you try to be true, and Fry did not try to be true on a factual level. Um, there's no way in his, even in his drug-addled post-recovery memory, could he have thought that he spent three months in, in jail when he did not spend any time in jail. Well, here's my very cynical <laughs> view of this. I, I think that this scandal is actually about the publishing industry, and it's about um, like what you could call the conflict between art and commerce. So you say what a memoir is supposed to do is stick to the truth. 
I mean, really what a memoirist is supposed to do is write a book that will sell in today's market. Oh. And, oh, no, I'm, I'm, you know, I think that that's, that's true. And people, you know, who maybe don't have as much experience with the, the publishing industry can say things like, you know, what, that it's about the book and the quality of the book. But, you know, you have to, as a, as a writer, if, if your books don't sell, you don't, get to write another book, and they don't buy the book if they don't think it's going to sell. So what he did was craft a book that was apparently exactly the book the marketplace wants at the moment. I mean, these books sold in unbelievable quantities. And, you know, so I think, you know, in today's climate, to say that a writer is supposed to be truthful is, is to be naive about the conditions of our time. And I think what every scandal does is is enact some kind of intractable social contradiction. And, you know, the fact is that, you know, this is one of these areas of hypocrisy. It's the elephant in the room, which is that it's the publishing industry that has to be appeased and the market that writers work for, not some, you know, sacrosanct idea of truth. Well, gee, I, I don't know where to start with that. If you claim it's nonfiction, if you say... I'm going to write a book of nonfiction detailing um, the extraordinary events of my life, and it turns out to be fiction. Haven't you lied? Well, I'm not sure memoir. I, you know, I don't. I, I'm not sure if the book said nonfiction. It said it said memoir, and you know, I've read a lot of uh, accounts by memoirs of where what they think the rules of memoir are, and you know, there's all sorts of disagreements. Um, some people combine characters, make up dialogue. You know, um, read reorder events, you know, to, to make a compelling story. And what I did was, in this chapter, first of all, look at the structure of a narrative, particularly these recovery narratives, which, here's the, the thing, a recovery narrative has to pre- present the protagonist, the, the memoirs, as somebody who lacks self-knowledge. You lack some knowledge about yourself, which along the course of the way you attain, usually in some kind of epiphany, uh, which, you know, then sort of so- solves the original problem. So there's already a structure, which is a fictional structure that's imposed on a life. I mean, lives don't necessarily follow the, these, these narrative requirements that a, that a memoir needs, needs to, the steps that a memoir needs to take to tell, to translate the story of a life to, to readers. So, you know, I just think the form is itself a fiction. And so the you know the the fact that the details can be fictionalized or sometimes are doesn't seem so surprising to me. Mm. Well, I, I'll agree with you to this extent. There are inevitable deep falsehoods involved in 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 setting down a life story because lives are not stories and because mm-hmm. lots of things are going to be omitted, and uh, the messiness is generally going to be taken out because it just doesn't make for good reading. Mm-hmm. But I do see a difference between that and simply inventing whole episodes, whole facts. Uh, and I still believe that when I pick up a memoir, which I don't very often because I don't trust most of them, uh, that I the person should not say, me. well, the person should not say, I'm a man if the person's a woman. I went to the moon if the person never even got out of their, their lazy boy. Uh, I was a pro football player when the person never touched a pigskin. You know what I mean? I just don't think that level of invention is... Um, what we want in in so-called life stories, although I do think the genre is is absolutely suspect and tainted. I agree with you to that extent. Well, 
You know, uh, your your uh, analysis of the Fry affair includes some, some interesting thoughts on the untenability of the recovery memoir uh, or the contradictions that are built into the recovery memoir. You just mentioned some of them. Um, the fact that they begin with a person who has incomplete self-knowledge, who thinks they're doing okay, but they're not doing okay, and then discovers who they really are, and, and they know themselves fully, and everything gets better at the end. Which is sort of fictive, uh, <laughs> you know, pretty fictive to begin with, right? Well, you you make the point that if, if a self could be deluded about itself at any point during the story, then how do we know it's not still deluded yeah. about itself? How can you ever trust that self? Yeah, and then, you know, the, his foil in all of this was, was Oprah, and, you know, first she elevated him, and then she, you know, thwacked him in, in public. And what I do is I found this piece that she wrote about herself, a somewhat memoiristic or confessional piece in the in this recovery sort of genre about her uh, weight problems. And it's called How Did I Let This Happen Again? And it's about her having gained 40 pounds with sort of not quite a, noticing it. And, and then when she tries to explain it, I mean, she's just as incoherent about herself and, you know, comes up with all of these red herrings. It was her thyroid. No, it wasn't. It was stress. It was, you know, being too busy. And, you know, she contradicts herself 50 times in, you know, the course of, well, I don't know, a 10-page 10, 10 piece. So, you know, I don't think she's so different. I mean, I take your point that he invented things or, you know, made up facts or things that are supposed to be facts. But, you know, I think everybody, when they're talking about themselves in this way, they're trying to hit these notes, the, the dark moment, the epiphany, the recovery. Um, but, you know, there's just this level of, of self-incoherence. Mm. And I think that that is the truth of, of who we are. So I don't think the truth has to do with whether you're born in Ohio or, Ohio or not. I think the truth has to do with, you know, the depth of, of our incoherence. Mm. Well, you're you're talking about two different kinds of truth, right? I mean, yeah. And I, I maintain that it's possible to try to adhere to factual truth while also trying to get at deeper truths. I think both are possible. And uh, you know, he clearly abandoned any commitment to factual, you know, accurate representation. Uh, and I don't even know if it was in the service of a higher goal of showing how incoherent we all are. I think it was in the service of making a lot of money, which he pocketed, you know. Oh, sure. I mean, but, you know, uh, but, okay, are we going <laughs> to come down against the writer for commercial success when, you know, in a way, it's, it, in our times, that's the only measure of success is how you how you do in the in the marketplace. And I'm going to say one more thing. I don't want to, you know, get into too huge of an argument with you. But, you know, anybody who picked up this book had to see that it was, written in this completely stylized and literary way. There are no quotation marks. There are no, if I remember, indentations in the dialogue. You have these words capitalized randomly, mid-sentence. Um, you know, all of these kind of signs of literary license and, and stylization. I mean, so it wasn't presented to the reader in a uh, kind of language that suggests factuality. It suggested a literary imaginative exercise. So I know it was marketed as a memoir. I think he had ambitions to do something different, which was to be a literary writer. And his precedents, his heroes, were all of the writers who combined fact and fiction in their work. 
you know, like Henry Miller, um, who often use like these kind of invented first-person per- personas, Bukowski, people like that. So I think you know he saw himself as in a literary tradition, and he came up against a, a book market that wanted not the novel that he wanted to write, but wanted memoirs because those would sell. Uh, fair enough. I think you have a soft spot for writers, it sounds like <laughs> to me. I do. Yeah, I, I think that's you're, probably true. It, it's funny because your Linda Tripp chapter, you're, you're absolutely unsparing when it comes to yeah. her. And uh, James Fry, you are a pushover. Yeah, I, I, again, I think it's my contrarian side. I think he got scapegoated, and I think you know he took the hit for things that we don't want to think about, like which is how much books are about commerce now and not about what the author's intention or desires are. So we've made it through all four scandals, and I want to come back to something, an issue you pose at the beginning of your book, which is that there's an absence of scandal theory out there. Uh, Now with your book, How to Become a Scandal, uh, we have a theory. What is the theory? Well, what's the takeaway, as they say? (laughs) Oh, I never use that term. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that, you know, there's there's a structure to to scan. No, I mean, there are the necessary steps about propriety violation and the public's response. I mean, I think I was focused on the dynamic between the scandalizer and the audience, you know, that they need us as much as we need them. The element of self-destruction and the way that we as the audience participate in, in that, you know, so there's almost a sadomasochistic kind of dance that we're all playing out together. Um, and I think also the the element of social or existential contradictions, I mean, some of them intractable that that underlie each scandal. I mean, I think each of these, and the, the Fry, you know, to, to go back to this art versus commerce or the effect of the marketplace on our lives in the way we're all forced to compromise ourselves and, and shape ourselves to the requirements of the marketplace. So, you know, I think Fry, I think all of the scandalizers are, are scapegoats to some degree for contradictions that we all are trying to negotiate every day in our lives, like just, you know, trying to maintain some level of rationality when our desires are so oftentimes irrational. Mm. I want to read a, a, a couple lines of yours that um, make a, a great uh, general point as well. As with scandals generally, they tell us things we didn't want to know. For instance, that the unreliable narrator isn't a literary device alone. It's an ontological condition. Ha ha. This, I suspect, is basically what scandal is up to. It's mocking us. Its greatest delight is making garish public spectacles out of our internal miasma, giving us an externalized portrait of the structure of the psyche itself. Exposing, in other words... um, the contradictions, the uh, sort of rickety nature of our own self-understanding is what scandal's good for, since most of these people who fall into scandals, uh, or at least many of them, you know, are victims of of various forms of self-delusion and and self-sabotage. Yes. (laughs) I I reiterate what I said. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Thank you for reading that. You agree with yourself. I... For once, yes, a rare moment of self-identification. Well, Laura, um, what's what's your next subject? You're probably at work on something new, huh? Well, I could end up writing about scandal forever is the uh-huh. problem. I keep getting requests to write about the current scandal. 
I've been thinking a lot about narcissism, which is, you know, a bit of an offshoot of this, and, and even about the superego, like the decline of the superego. But, I, you know, once again, as with the last book, I don't know how to approach it. So it might be some time before I figure it out. Well, I think uh, this is tailor-made for your, for your treatment, so I can't wait to read it. Well, thank you for all your profound insights into my book. Um, it was very interesting to talk to you. Laura Kipnis is a professor in the Department of Radio, TV, and Film at Northwestern University. Her latest book is How to Become a Scandal, Adventures in Bad Behavior. And this has been the 7th Avenue Project. We're on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. <laughs>